0: Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. And joining us this week is Max Glastone. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. How are you doing?
1: Doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: (laughs) Well, we're glad you're here. Um, And typically when we do our interviews, i pass it over to Will to ask the first couple questions. So Will, take it away.
2: Awesome. So, we ask this question to all of our guests when they come on, and it's, describe your career in three words. And they could be completely unrelated.
1: Always towards up.
2: All right. Oh. So, let's unpack those words. What What is that? <laughs> when you said them, what comes to mind?
1: Well, um, it's something all my students used to say when I was teaching in Anhui in, uh, in southern China. Tian Tian Shan, like you know always every, every day you study, every day you're every day towards up. Um, and I don't know, that really stuck in my mind as an ethos and as a way to approach career and life. I feel like I'm always trying to build, always trying to do a little bit more, a little bit harder, a little bit uh, a little bit more challenging um, than I was doing last year this time. Um, I think when you're writing, it's when you're writing and you're writing commercial work. That is to say, you're like going to the market. There's a temptation always to try to do the thing that worked for you last time, or the thing that just sort of is the brand. And um, for me, anyway, trying to do exactly that thing over and over again, you you end up settling yourself into a rut, maybe a little bit. You know, if you get to the point where your own writing isn't exciting you or isn't challenging you. Then you can um, that can be a dark place or a hard place to come out of. So I'm always trying to set myself new goals, push myself a little further. Um, and I don't know. That's been the course of my career. It's encouraged me to experiment with other um, genres, with other veins um, of and styles of storytelling. That's part of the reason that I moved into interactive fiction. When I did, and it's part of the reason that I started doing some screenwriting and comic book writing. These are all things that I've always been interested in, but it's also part of a desire to just try to do new things all the time. That's awesome. I'm gonna. And pass- it's great to then have the prose as a foundation to come back to. Like okay. at the end of the day, oh yeah, okay, what do I have to do now? I got to sit down and write a book. It's Just got to try to be a better book this year or this time than it was last time.
2: That's awesome, Brent. I'll pass it to you
3: yeah sure um so i guess my first question was um what story elements do you personally need to have figured out before you can start drafting
1: Mm, it's a good question changes every book um i for me each novel is sort of like a lock and you're trying to pick it so you know and you're and you you're going in you have your set of tools Um, and you, your original set of tools or your original approach might not actually work for the lock that you're trying to pick. Maybe you need a different kind of wrench, maybe you need a different kind of pressure lever. Maybe this style doesn't actually work for this lock and you got to find different sort of approach. Um, so the question is then what's the lock, right? Um, and uh, William, I think this is from Zinzer's fiction writing, the novel and novelist or Sorry, the edit, the fiction editor, of the novel, and the novelist. He talks about a sort of prelibation, a, a something that you're hungry for, kind of that brings you to the page, and that could be a character, it could be a vision or a dream, it could be a snatch of dialogue or an image, um, it could be something different, but it gets you fired up. You, you think, oh, there's this is this is a pitch that's right there for me. I don't know why it is because you don't. You know, you, you can't think through all the math of why you know the pitch is going to the strike zone, but you know somehow, and you just feel like there's enough there to really try to take a piece out of it. It starts to sound very weird and mystical, um, but it's it's not. It's it's a question of recognizing through practice the feeling that there's something real there um, in this character or in this snatch of scene that you can't possibly let go of. It keeps following you around. It keeps after you. And if I have that, then it's a matter of letting the rest of it unspool. Sometimes the right approach for a book has been to outline the whole thing from stem to stern, get real detailed, like uh, almost paragraph by paragraph outlines of what I'm trying to do. I've written 20,000 word outlines. I've written zero word outlines. I've gone in completely blank. That's easiest when you have a totally blank space. So your choices can all sort of inform and create this space that the story is operating in. But even when you're working in a defined world with defined characters, it's important to let them surprise you or let your own work with them surprise you. It's not like you're necessarily channeling, um, I don't know, channeling the muse or whatever. Like you don't have to think about it that way though. Sometimes it's an easy way to organize your impressions. Um, it's, it's the, you know, you make so many choices writing a book. You choose not just who the characters are, but you choose what word you're going to use to describe the sky on this page. Those choices aren't all conscious. No matter how intensely you're trying to outline and build and structure the book, you're going to start making choices that you didn't anticipate. And if you can pay attention to those choices, they're going to lead the story into really interesting directions. You're sort of, your unconscious or subconscious or borderline conscious choice-making on the prose level. It's kind of telling you what book you're trying to write, which may or may not be the book you set out thinking you were going to write. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that makes, uh, that's a clear answer to your question, Brent, but that's that's often uh, how I feel about it. Like you learn how to write the book that you're sitting there writing. No, that's a
3: perfect answer. (laughs) (laughs)
0: and i and i actually have a follow-up kind of for that um so you were saying you you've been writing different things uh you know comics um screenplay stuff like that i know you wrote a book with amal amater as well um so how do the how does that change especially if you're doing something collaborative that usually has you know comics are collaborative writing a novel with someone is collaborative so how do you have those conversations uh before you start drafting, especially if you're collaborating uh with a novel like you get did with uh, This Is How You Lose the Time War.
1: Yeah. So with, um, with This Is How You Lose the Time War, so I've actually done a lot of different collaborative projects between my work with Serial Box and Book Burners and Wizard School Dropout, the interactive TV show that I did, and then also obviously Time War. Uh, and each of those collaborations has worked in different ways. Um, collaborations in general push you more towards open communication and pre-writing, in my experience than the kind of wander off into the dark woods and try to find yourself a story approach, which I actually do like when it's just me, solo, and a blank piece of paper. Um, But there remains a question of how much you want to detail. When you're working in film and television, and even to a lesser extent, comics, you need to be extremely clear up front about what you're planning to do. In film and TV, that's because you're not just um, trying to, what's a, what's a good, this isn't even a diplomatic question. It's like how to sum it up without sounding really cynical. Um, if I'm working in film and TV, right, I'm, I'm trying to make a TV show and I'm writing, somebody has an apartment with a lofted bed. There's some motherfucker whose job is going to be to have to make that lofted bed. If I'm writing <laughs> something that's taken place on a space station, they're going to be like, 20 union people trying to figure out how they're going to build the interior of that space station. So those are real choices that affect how much it's going to cost to produce the thing. Um, So if you submit uh, an outline or a detailed episode by episode breakdown of your project to the studio and there's a space station in your outline, there has to be a space station in the end. You can't be on a desert island instead because they've hired people and they've costed it out in their head. They've like they've got their spreadsheets that may actually be spreadsheets or may just be the sort of running tally of how much this is going to cost. That sort of depend on your outline. So mm-hmm. there, you need to be a little more, um, a little more like the the builder of a house. You need to have your plans clear. You need to be comfortable sticking to them. Even if it may turn out at some point that, oh, wait, there isn't actually found bedrock under here. So we're going to have to sink some cement pilings down until we hit bedrock. That's going to make the project more complicated, but we can't hold up the wall anyway. But those, that's the level of decision you're going to have to make. Um, with, uh, with When you're moving away from some other humans need to be making really serious brass tacks business decisions... Connected with your plan, then you can be a little bit more flexible. Like when we were working with book burners um, and the cereal box projects, that's all prose. So ultimately, a certain level of rewriting is expected and and can be done, even very late in the production process. But you need to be certain that you're not, you know, killing somebody that somebody else is going to need to anchor their next episode. So there, you need to make clear kind of what. The structure of each episode is going to be how what the inputs and outputs are. It's maybe a like mechanistic mm-hmm. way to think about it. But where do people start your episode? Where do they need to finish the episode in order for the next person's story to make sense? How's that all going to tie together? Um, and then with Time War, that's a really tight. That was a really tight collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, Am- Amal and I knew that we both wanted to. Um, Run into it, kind of exploring our own voices, one another's voices. We structured the book so that we'd have as much freedom as possible. We talked to to um, invent the character, invent the structure as we went along. We knew that well. One of the advantages of the massive time traveling setting and of the really tight sort of over the shoulder camera that we have over red and blue throughout Time War is that you're not going to be forced to follow like 16 secondary characters in order to make Mm -hmm. this world make sense. It's red and blue reds vision of her world and blues vision of her world. We're glimpsing the theaters that they're operating in. Like, uh, you know, you glimpse things flashing by the train window, sometimes in the subway. It's like, Oh, there's a guy welding. Oh, well, it's gone. Okay. That's what you get. Um, you understand the, forces that they're working with and against mostly from their own opinions about them like how does red feel about commandant and about the agency how does red feel about her fellow agents how does blue feel about her relationship with garden um so we talked a little bit about we talked about um roughly speaking who the characters were the kind of time travel we were operating in this big Mm -hmm. sprawling multiverse we talked about we talked that we really wa- about really wanting the plot to hinge around these two very different people coming closer together through the story. We didn't even say setting out that it was going to be a romance, even though it ends up really veering in that direction. Mm-hmm. We knew that these were just people who were going to start off at odds and realize that they had a lot more in common with one another through their experiences than with either of the sides they were working against having that general sense of str- and we knew that there was going to be a hinge probably where one of them would would die or would have to transform in a way like sort of sacrifice themselves for the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that sacrifice would probably would be redeemed. like those are the those are the rough pieces that we had. So that was kind of what we knew of the book going in. Uh, and within that, because it was just the two of us, we sat down and just wrote it. Chapter by chapter. Yeah. Um, I'd write a scene in which Red is receiving a letter and Amal would be writing the letter that Blue is sending to Red. And at the same time, then we'd swap and read what one another had done. We'd talk a lot about the context in which the letters would be received each time because it, it felt like a nice piece of the puzzle. It allowed us to kind of get a sense of, oh, okay, this is being sent in a tree. This is inside a seal or, mm-hmm. or something. And we left the contents of the letter completely up to the individual writer of that letter. So I didn't know what was going to be in a letter that Amal was writing until I read it and vice versa. That was really cool. It added an element of surprise and danger to the composition. You just don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going next. And it um, was surprising to us how often the contents of a letter ended up being prefigured by the chapter uh, one way or the other. We were just like so tight and we were so marinated in the story that at a certain point we started like reflexively reaching out to catch pitches that the
0: other person was throwing. It was, it was a really cool compositional experience. Yeah, it sounds awesome. The book was amazing. I just was very Thank curious you. on how you guys – on how you guys uh collaborated and how how that process played out i like the idea of reading the letter and then getting and sending you know writing the letter sending it over and then applying re- i think that's awesome
1: yeah so. it's, it was weird too because like we um we're friends but we're friends from long distance like amal mm-hmm. is in um is in canada, canada the states yeah. uh, so before we started writing this we were trading a lot of letters back and forth just sort of just chatting about life and our experiences and and things of that nature. But when we were writing the book, we were actually in the same place. We'd found like a week and a half in both of our schedules, um, went to a writer's retreat. There was a gazebo like out behind the creepy (laughs) old house we were living in, which is a pretty cool thing. And we just staked out the gazebo every morning, woke up at 8 a.m., walked out with a couple of computers and a cup of coffee and two cups of coffee and <laughs> sat across the table from one another and we're writing it. And then we we're swapping and then we'd write, go on a long walk, talk about the chapter, talk about like what the historical period we would go to next. There was hardly any break for research or anything or we just drawing extensively on our own experiences and knowledge and kind of trusting that we'd be able to fill that back in on the back half. And yeah, it was great. It was a uh, cool, strange time. That's awesome.
0: So i wanna, right, back. Back to you there, Brent or Will. Sorry.
2: Yeah, it's okay. Um, so I want to talk about book burners for a minute. Um, how yeah. how did that evolve, and then how did you pick, or did you get to pick the writers that you were collaborating with?
1: Um, how did that evolve, like the format or the idea? Yeah. Of well, it. so book burners is an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Book burners is an interesting, uh, really interesting one. Um, so. Julian Yap, who is one of the co-founders of Serial Box, and I had been talking about the idea of short form, um, sort of serial, shortish fiction on a TV series model as something that could work and have a lot of legs and in, in, in kind of modern digital publishing for for a bit, and he he'd been sort of revolving around this idea of. Um, you know the Vatican Black Library. Where, where, where do all the forbidden magic books go? And we kept having uh, this sort of running argument about the nature of the concept. Like that's kind of that's kind of weird, isn't it? Like you're talking basically about the foreign planetary or something. Like if you if there is magic, if there is weirdness, why? lock it all up in the vault. And he's like, well, yeah, but it's not just information. We're not talking about censorship. We're talking about like nuclear material here, stuff that really could harm people. Um, but then, you know, who decides? So we went like 10 rounds on this concept and that was, and somewhere in that process, we realized that, wait, actually the fact that we're having this hard of a time settling into a sense of, um, settling into an agreement on this, even though we agreed on a lot of stuff, it means that there's some real vein there. There's something neat to start working with. So I worked up the pitch. We sent it around. We got a, a number of different writers' takes on it, and it. Some of them, some of the people who showed up were people um, Julian knew. Some of them were people I knew, um, and it was a pretty. Um, interesting, far-flung group. I think Murr and I knew each other um, going into season one. I had never met Margaret or Brian before. And we, but we really gelled in the course of a weekend of looking at the initial pitch documents and the kind of proposals that we'd been sending around in preparation for the story summit. And in a lot of cases, just sort of tearing them apart and then asking ourselves big questions about what themes of the story really would be, what the character's arcs would be over the next several seasons. We didn't have a sense of what the plot, what the, what the big pillar plot would be for the back half of the story. But we had a sense of where all the characters were going and that we need, you know, what challenges you wanted to throw in the society's way. And um, and that was the heart of it. We had like big multi-season character arcs we had the character arcs for the first season set in and in many cases the episode outlines for the first season were very sketchy after that story summit there was ones like you know grace takes a day off okay you know and and (laughs) my favorite part about that is we were so clear going into season one uh, um who the characters were and what how they needed to grow and develop and talk to each other. But we were so vague about the specific like monster of the week aspect of the story, um, for a lot of the episodes that people came up with some real wonderful madcap stuff, the the tattoo artist or, or Mr. Norse showing up out of, out, out of nowhere, like not being a part of the story summit at all. These, these wonderful surprises, uh, I think it's something that really the later seasons of Book Burners are just wonderfully tight and dramatic, but I think we also moved in away from something that was closer to a 90s TV series model, like a long season where you have a lot of episodes where you're just sort of hanging out with Mulder and Scully. Like you're reasonably certain they're going to find some weird shit in this small town that they've been sent to, but it's probably not going to ultimately unveil the big secret conspiracy that's underlying everything probably. Um, but it's, it's you're just, you like the characters, you like the dynamic, you like getting a chance to hang out with these people. Um, and then the later seasons is the pressure and tension built. Uh, we lost the ability to have more of those kind of characters just hanging out sequences or and then and then they solve a murder kind of stories and then that's you know it's a, it's the trade-off the more big and dramatic and high stakes the sequence like the more riveting it becomes in a way but also the less chance you get to just hang out um, just hang out of course in this context being like you know fight monsters mm-hmm. stop a demon from taking over the vatican whatever but it, it does feel like hanging out on a certain level um, Grace is my absolute
2: favorite character of that whole series. I love her.
1: Oh, thank you. I
2: love her. Okay, oh, back to you. She's Brian. great.
3: Yeah. So, um, so speaking of favorites, uh, The Craft sequence is one of my like all time favorite fantasy series ever. And thank you. Yeah, without a doubt. So I wanted to ask. All of the cities in the craft sequence from like Dresdeo-Lex, to Aqua to like Agile-Lex, like they all feel very distinct and just like, I don't know, they all kind of like sort of have their own character to them. So like, what do you do to keep your various locations in your work from feeling too similar to each other?
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I'm glad for one thing that you, uh, you feel that way. And, um, it's something that I really love about working on that series. You know, every time you get to go to a new place, there's new stuff there that's waiting for you. Um, and something that's really exciting to me about sort of wading back into it right now as I'm, as I am doing, um, I'm working on another couple craft sequence novels, but, um, As for the how of it, it's, for me, it's really a question of paying attention to texture. Like if I think back on the cities that I visited, there are very rarely two that feel at all alike. and it's not just, not even like, um, I'm not even talking about like the grand old imperial capitals, like, you know, London or Rome or something, but you know, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. (laughs) Those are two, those are three cities that feel extremely different. Just walking around, feeling around the downtown. You can't be in one of them for more than, I don't know, 45 minutes without getting some sense of there being a texture there. Now, this is admittedly shaped by where you are like if you're hanging around the um if you're hanging around the i don't know the mall applebees jordan's furniture <laughs> nexus then everything is going to start feeling very samey but i don't know cities have their own rhythm they have their own sorts of faces they have their own culture about how you see people in the street like you know do, do you nod do you look away do you just walk past how open and expressive are people on the sidewalk? Is there, you know, is there, are, are there, is there street music or not? These are all things that I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I, it might just be, you know, my dad has sp- spent a lot of time playing on street corners, playing guitar on street corners in the, in my childhood. And so like, this, these are the kind of things that we'd pay a lot of attention to going around. Like, is there music? Who's, who's making it? um what's the is there a street life what 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 sort of street life is there what are people wearing on the sidewalk you know um and on that level it's hard to find two places that that are alike you know you got um some pla- whether it's determined by geography or whether it's determined by well it is determined by geography and by local culture and by the sort of National background in the U.S. like national backgrounds of the people who settled, people who moved in, various waves of emigration and immigration, various you know layers and vectors of overlapping oppressions, all that kind of shit. Like it's all baked into the culture of the city, and it and it manifests in the way people talk to one another. So I, I I really try to think of the cities in the craft sequence, even though they're invented cities, as characters in the same way that I don't know Nashville is a character or that or atlanta as a character like what happened here what's happened here in the craft sequence I'm, I, I'm i'm sort of focusing on what's happened here for the last 150 years or so um just because before then there's all you know it's a very different social environment but even there okay what were these people doing in the war right these, these are the kind of questions i ask myself when I'm approaching a new urban environment the craft sequence especially what was the war like here where did People go and where do people come from? How's it changed? Did this used to be a small place that is now a huge place? Did it used to be a huge place that is now a small place? Did this used to be a fishing in, in the case of Cavacana, right? Did this used to be a fishing and shipping capital that's now heavily into financial services? Okay, what's that like? Um, you know what what sort of industries are there? This is. Uh, you know, my father-in-law has done a lot of time as a consultant. And when I started talking to him about this thing, having come from like a family of teachers in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, right? I was surprised to hear him break down cities when we were going to visit as like, oh yeah, well, that's basically Hewlett Packard town. Like, oh shit. Okay. Right (laughs) there. You know, what are the industries that are driving a place? These are the kinds of things that, you know, I wasn't, brought up to think about but you also start to pay attention to the way that other people are seeing territory. I don't know if any of that's making sense but I just try to weigh all of these factors and when and, and not even answer all these questions in a kind of like spreadsheety way, but if you start even picking at some answers and then asking yourself what's the next logical consequence? what happens after that then what does that necessarily mean? then you pretty quickly get a fingerprint or a silhouette that's unmistakable for any other. Yeah, no that that's actually really
3: amazing to hear. And um, just just <laughs> for the audience, like I'm learning. I feel like I'm part of the audience, even though I'm in the interview. I'm like I'm learning here. Like this is such great <laughs> stuff. Like I'm definitely coming back to this and taking notes later. Oh, um, Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I'm just going on download mode right now. You got me over caffeinated and like in the two hours of my kid's nap right now. So it's just. Going at adult talk.
0: Time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to throw something out there too, because you know, our, our podcast, you know, we have a lot of folks that are writing frantically writing trying to get stuff published and that kind of thing. And we yeah. kind of form a community around it. And I think these moments um, when we do interview folks and just the way, because a lot of us write science fiction and fantasy. So how do you have a feel like, cause I mean, you know, a lot of us have traveled to different cities, but then how do you take a feeling in a created, in a, in a completely made up city. And I like that you've connected it to where just bringing those things, not just history, but how it feels walking through a space, um, I think is, is really, um, worth taking notes on like Brent said, so.
2: <laughs> Excellent. So my next question is this, you have a martial arts background and, mm-hmm. um, how has that influenced any type of scene with like action and movement? Has it influenced it or no?
1: I think it absolutely has. Um, Well, all of your background influences almost every scene you write, even if you're not conscious of it. But specifically my background in a few different kinds of martial arts influences my action scenes, sometimes in a good way, but I think also sometimes in less of a good way. Um, The advantages are... You know, even though I've been blessed to not live an extremely violent life, like, I know what it feels like to be punched in the face. I know what it feels like to be kicked in the side. I know what it feels like to be you know, limping around for a week after your stupid fucking kick lands wrong on somebody else's ribs. And so now there's something going on in your foot, but then you go to the the doctor and they're like, I don't know, we can't see anything in your foot. But you still can't put any weight on it. So you're wandering around like Kaiser Soze <laughs> for two weeks, um, you know, stuff like that. Like there's, there's a, there's the physical experience of what it's like of, of the moment when, you know, I'm, you're in a fight. You're in a fight. You're you're in a sparring match, or you or maybe even you're in something that's a little bit more serious than just a sparring match. And then you cross over, and all of a sudden you're mad. And then what does that do to you? Um, some what what advantages does it give you, and what costs? Um, to what extent is the animal side of you actually useful uh, when you've when you when you're uh, when, when you're scrapping down, like? How does it feel those are extremely useful the thing that sometimes I think trips me up when I'm coming to an action scene is maybe even a too clear visualization of exactly what's happening like where is his hand on his arm where's her foot going in what like what's the angle of the hip and what's that's do, that doing why is he overextended here um, and if you, It is possible to explain all of this. It is possible to set it out, but sometimes the very clear blocking in your own head is hard to translate to the page. Um, And when you try to translate it to the page, like, oh, you know, his arm is over here at this angle, and then we're hitting above the elbow in this particular way, and that's going to cause this to happen. Um, If you can translate it engagingly, that's wonderful detail and is going to grip the reader, but if all you're doing is trying to get the picture in your head onto the page, sometimes you'll end up choking what should be a really breezy uh, kinetic scene with uh, a lot of pose diagramming. So it's a balancing act. You can learn so much from it. You you can learn so much from the emotional side of things. You can also learn so much from the um, the real lived sense of what bodies can do. <laughs> and what they can't do. Um, that awareness of possibility and limit is, I think, the heart of any dramatic scene. But you also need to be careful not to descend into jargon or um, overly professional discourse. This is Roger Zelazny was a pretty um, excellent fencer and for a long time refused to use fencing techniques and he's also a, like a black belt in aikido and he veered away from using explicitly aikido stuff and explicitly fencing stuff in his fiction even though there are a lot of fights and even though there are a lot of there's a lot of swordplay. because when you start talking about breaking down a fencing action um you almost need an entire like that's a, a magic system all its own um, if you want to start talking about like the tactical wheel and attacking into time and various sorts of tempo creation and answers to different, you know, the extent to which it all becomes this giant game of rocks, paper, scissors, lizard Spock, you know, these are, (laughs) these are, uh, these are really cool, but the question is always balance in the scene. How much of this can you give your reader without breaking them out of the flow of the story? Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm reading, um, I'm reading, uh, Brian Staveley's new novel now, and something I love about Staveley is that he personally is not something that like is you know in the in the author bio or anything, but he personally does these stupid long um, endurance races, like those the kind of things you'll watch on like I don't know Discovery Channel where it's like four days, nobody sleeps. <laughs> below freezing, like everybody's toenails are falling off. <laughs> he does crazy. this shit for fun. Like he, <laughs> talked to, he, he talked to me about, you know, okay. So when, when my team was coming together, we had this thing where we'd all like occasionally call each other at 2am and say, okay, go do the thing. And what the thing was, was we had to go and get a mountain bike and run to the top of this one particular mountain and meet each other at the top of the mountain. It's like that. that that's so, so <laughs> he has a lot of experience with doing these extremely uncomfortable, awful, awful things to his body. Um, and it comes out in the fiction, but he's also really great, in my opinion, at balancing how that feels with like, how much does it need to be in the story? <laughs> it's it's a question of extraneous detail. I'm probably giving too much extraneous detail right now in attempting <laughs> to answer this question, but anyway.
3: Yeah, no, no that not at perfect. all. That was, Thank that
1: you. was Awesome.
3: Well, um, I guess before I get into the next question, just to kind of like let the audience understand why I'm asking this, um, it's hard to overstate just how imaginative like Max's work is. So if you are one of those few who haven't checked it out yet, you absolutely must, because it's like I think I read a blurb that said Max puts more imagination in one chapter than some people do in whole books. And it's absolutely true. So I guess uh, the question I had is um, what advice would you give to a writer that's seeking to create more
1: imaginative and expansive science fiction and fantasy worlds? Good question. Everything that I've written has come out of my own interests the stuff that really fires me up, Um, the stuff that uh, the the corners of a fantasy world or of a – of, of the modern world that I just can't get enough of thinking over, or I can't look away from in this way that you sometimes can't look away from a, a car wreck or a just awful cut that you've given yourself. You're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> um, and that's where I think this, this sort of traits that we call imagination or creativity come from. Um, Aristotle, I think it's Aristotle has this thing about how imagination is really uh, synthetic, which is to say you're taking stuff apart and putting it together in weird ways. A Pegasus is a horse, but also wings. Or yeah. um, the sort of traditional uh, Chinese line on a dragon, is it something with the body of a snake and the head of a camel and the mane of a lion and the eyes of a rabbit, which always struck me as kind of weird, um, the claws of an eagle. Uh, so you're, you're sort of breaking apart the world and you're putting it back together in this extremely exciting and interesting and strange way in the, in the way that our dreams work almost. And for me, that's what imaginative fiction and science fiction and fantasy, especially, can do. They can take things that engage you for whatever reason and present them in a new way, a new light, coming at them from a new angle. A danger that we have in science fiction and fantasy, especially, I think, is habit. Um, that you know, there's a tendency sometimes to do things just because that's how they, that's how they're done. In fantasy, so, oh, okay, and guys got to have a sword because it's fantasy novel, so there needs to be a sword. And sometimes you're writing the sword because you like swords, right? And you're really <laughs> interested in having somebody running around waving a sword. And if that's it, if that's what brings you to the page, then go for it. Like, don't question it. But it's possible that you're just writing a sword, writing a guy running around with a sword because you've read like a whole bunch of other books that have guys running around with swords, and you think that's what you got to do. Maybe maybe the thing that's really interesting you and is like, I don't know like someone who's a, a cook in this world, someone who's trying to Gordon Ramsay their way around Middle Earth, finding all the weird ass <laughs> semi sentient ingredients that are going to like give you strange dream trips when you cook them into your whatever. Like you, maybe maybe you're interested in the pipeweed connoisseur. Like I, I you know there there are so many angles that correspond with what like is actually bringing a lot of people to the page, and I think if you're excited you're going to have more ideas about what could happen rather than if what you're trying to do is, oh, just write a book like this other person wrote a book. Um, that excitement, in, in my opinion, that's going to help you navigate the, the pull between making something that's relatable to an audience and something that's, uh, that's new, because you know, you're, you're, you're excited. If we're writing in a fantasy world, there are some things about fantasy that do excite us, uh, each one of us individually and there's some things about fantasy that we're all probably a little tired of and when you're the one who's writing of Writing the book you get to decide what it is that you're tired of or what it is that you're gonna try to do different this time So I think that's that's the heart of it But pay attention to what draws you to stories like this pay attention to what draws you to random stuff in your everyday life and then when you find that circuitry when you find that voltage then don't feel be afraid to use it like make something that excites you and then it'll excite somebody else out there people recognize the enthusiasm or the authenticity That's such a weird word to use because it gets over a lot in these conversations but when i'm using it here i'm really meaning that there's no way to fake liking something on some level uh Okay. never mind. There are a lot of ways to fake liking, a lot of different <laughs> stuff, right? You know, you can be sitting there like, Oh yeah, this is, this is a great cake. Thank you very much. This is very <laughs> thoughtful uh, or whatever. But, I mean, the, it, you can get kind of uncomfortable thinking about how direct is the relationship between a reader and a writer, um, or between the text and the reader, the reader is like literally letting you into letting your text into their brain. <laughs> and, we're bringing other people's texts into our own brains, into our own sort of imaginative visions of the world when we read them. So it's—I don't know—I've definitely ended up reading books and become uncomfortably familiar with aspects of an author's personality that they probably didn't realize that they were conveying to me without getting <laughs> to sort of too sort of NSFW on the podcast here. Uh, and I, I think that. That's very, I think that's very common. You know, it's, it's hard to hide what excites, what, what, what's interesting to you. And it's hard to hide also when you're doing something that you're not interested in. So, God, if like you think that you're sitting down to write a fantasy novel and you have to write a novel about some, uh, you know, like angry mercenaries wandering around the world doing angry mercenary stuff, and like, oh, well, I guess that's just what we do, and then it's going to read kind of stayed and basic on the page. If on the other hand, you're like, yeah, I'm here for the angry mercenaries are going to run around the world. I got so many. (laughs) And and great. That's also going to read as genuine because it's you. It's what what you're bringing in. Um, I I really do think that this is true. I think that um, it requires not just the naive rush of enthusiasm for doing the thing, but a lot of honesty, paying attention to your work and asking yourself as you're Writing it as you're rereading it. Wait, am I really into this? Is am I doing this because I want to do it, or am I just doing this because I think that's what people do? Um, it's, it's a it's a trick. It's a, it's a balancing act, like a lot of this.
3: Yeah, I, I I I mean, well, for my money, you balance it well. I never ever thought um, <laughs> a fantasy book about laws <laughs> would catch my attention. Like I was like, wait, what? Like. <laughs> So,
1: yeah. Well, but that's it, right? Like you think about the, you know, for me, it's thinking about the weird edge cases or thinking about, you know, how does this work in a fantasy world that works this way? Who is who is sponsoring all this? Uh, you know, there's um a person who I'm only familiar with by the name of Multiplexer, which is the name that they were writing under on various RPG forums, and they they do all these weird, like, okay, assume that a a science fictional world assume a science fictional or gaming world assume the shadow run world how do you actually steal six terabytes of data or assume a fantasy world obviously you have venture capitalists backing all of these adventurers because if you take a look at um you take a look at the uh earnings potential of an adventurer over uh, any particular year span <laughs> the profit margins is just so high compared to literally any other form of legitimate business that you're obviously going to sponsor adventurers so you've got this kind of VC market of hoogity people in beards and robes hooded robes sitting in the corners of taverns trying to like outposition one another for access to prime adventuring capital and it, it's so it's like what you know. What makes you think what if about a setting or about a context?
3: Yeah, and I I, I definitely I can speak for myself and probably a bunch of other people. Like I feel like you the way you write and the subjects you're willing to delve into has definitely made people go, oh, I can do that in fantasy. Oh, I can do that in science fiction. Like I can take it further. So yeah, I, th- I mean I I think that thought process. That's great to think. That's great yeah, to hear. no, nah, I think that thought process is amazing. Um, <laughs> I guess before I move to this uh, next question, I'll just give the audience a little backstory. Um, I actually got paired up with Max as a um, mentor, mentee program in, uh, through Swiffer, and I mean, I kind of, I feel like I embarrassed myself a little bit because they asked who your favorite author was, and I, like, gushed about Max in the paragraph, and then I'm like, oh, he got to read the application. Great. But, <laughs> but, um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, truly, uh, like Max is like one of the most imaginative writers out there, I think. And, um, so I guess I just kind of want to pivot to career stuff in this next question Are goals. Um, what writing goals, this can be personal or industry related, are you still looking forward to achieving in your career?
1: I, hmm all right well some ones that i have very little control over but that would be great to see i'd like i'd love to hit the big list i'd love to hit the MIT list at some point here i don't think we've done that i'd love to get something that i made turned into you know fully produced released um film or tv like, like traditional film or tv traditionally distributed i guess because wizard school dropout was you know there were actual actors there's actual stuff you can play it it's real which is so wild for me to think about because it all went down right before the pandemic, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, it would be awesome to see a big or medium screen adaptation of the craft sequence. It'd be awesome to see big screen Empress of forever or son or a adult animation version of it along the, like along the Dracula lines, um, the Castlevania lines. I mean, something like that would be super cool to see. Um, so, yeah. So the, and there are personal sort of internal income milestones and sales milestones that would be fun to hit. Um, you don't have a ton of control over any of those things though. What you really have control over is how you're navigating your own, um, writing practice, and then a bit more control over how you're navigating your life in the market. Who are you working with? Um, what how are you thinking about pitches and about the kinds of projects you're going after? Um, how are you building your audience and building a relationship with your audience? These are these are these are sort of tricky questions to manage right now. After having. I think I can talk about this. So after having worked in and around the craft sequence for about 10 years, I'm working on a trilogy that's going to serve more or less as a capstone to the sequence. Not that I'd necessarily never write anything in this world after it, but um, a a sort of three novels together that will give the world a kind of closure. And that's really cool. It's going to be an opportunity, I think, for people who have, never picked up the a craft sequence novel to get on board, catch up, orient themselves. Ideally these three books will also kind of stand alone as an introduction. Um, so you can go through a full adventure and then, oh, okay, great. There are five books sitting here in the back mm-hmm. uh, for you. So hopefully that'll work. I'm excited for that. And I'm excited to reach the end of a or the end of a big multi-volume project like that. Um, I'm working on a novel that's currently titled Blast Exit. We'll see if that survives contact with marketing. That is big standalone sort of dark contemporary fantasy novel. That's, um, I guess, Empress of Forever was also a sort of a standalone project. That was really the first standalone project that I released that was only mine. But that's another part of my career life that I'm excited to continue to explore. I think there's always going to be. Well, emper- <clears throat> there's always going to be a part of me that's rooted in deep genre. And then I've been interested in um, darker and more literary work for a while, by which I just mean st- stuff that feels a little more contemporary, um, that's a little bit less, that is outlandish in different directions. Um, so that's going to be a fun sort of series of projects to interleave going forward. You know, big flashy fantasy and science fiction with something I don't know so just a, a different sound and we'll see how it goes um I'm always looking to continue to evolve uh, so that's a bit what's about what's coming and I guess also I guess that also answers or gets to answering some of your questions about how I think about career um I'm tr- I try to separate as much as I can things that I can control, what's on the page, how I'm working with the other people in, I don't know, I always feel like kind of a tool when I say value chain, but it is kind of a chain, like, you know, your agent, um, your writing partners, the various publishers that you're working with, um, That's that's those are relationships that you can control or at least influence by doing what you say you're going to do, by turning in drafts on time, things like that. (laughs) And also by trying to sort of get ahead. What do people need? What do I want this book to be? And how effectively can I communicate that to the people I'm working with? How can I listen to their own insights too? Because these are people who have an enormous amount of skill and experience. You You don't want to leave any of that on the table. But then try to disengage, or at least I'm trying to disengage as much as I can from the external indicators over which I don't have any direct control, which largely are, are sales figures and subrights. All of that stuff is sort of a trailing indicator. If you have done, it's an indication that a number of things, some of which you have control over, like your work and the way that you're managing your corner of the publishing sphere, um, but it's also an indication of like, how well did the dice come up this time? Did you land in the market right? Um, was this the kind of book that everybody was hungry for? Had everyone just gone into quarantine two weeks ago? I mean, <laughs> you know, 2020 was a great, great um, example of how arbitrary all this stuff can be. You know, A lot of great releases came out last year. Uh, you know, Matt Wallace's Savage Legion Books came out last year. Um, Ryan Van Lone's Sin and the Steel came out last year, just to pick two. I mean, these are, these are guys that I know who had, you know, really awesome books out. And like debut novels, they came out in summer of 2020. It was really hard to get bandwidth in summer of 2020. There were a lot of people paying attention to a lot of other stuff. So mm-hmm. what I'm starting to see and I'm excited about that is as the pandemic is kind of as we're looking to round at least one of the bends on it, people are talking more about the the books that folks missed just in the thrust of the apocalypse last year. Um, so that's cool. And I don't know. Maybe that's a weird uh, <laughs> <laughs> angle on things, but, uh, but yeah, you know, you've got you, you do what you can. I don't know. Does that is that does that make any sense? Is that no, that, that like, makes much sense. Today? Like I'll be I'm.
3: I'm always like I, I don't know Max. I'm just I'm trying not to like constantly be impressed because I am. I'm constantly impressed. By it, so it's like I'm just absorbing all of this and like. No, it's cool,
1: so, man. It's cool. Yeah, no, this is. It's just like so. I I feel sort of when I talk about this stuff, like you, you it's, it's so much the the old Irish thing, right? You know, or the, the Serenity Prayer, not the Irish one. The Irish one is the one about the the shillelagh. Um <laughs> I always get them kind of confused. It does feel like that in publishing sometimes. Uh, you know, you know may, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can change, the strength to change the things that I can, the wisdom to know the difference. And may he turn their ankles so you can tell them by their limping or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am very excited that three more craft
3: sequence books are coming out. For me personally, that I had the same feeling <laughs> hearing that, like when I heard Infinity War was coming out. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I hope you like them. I'm, I'm feeling it. It's 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 great to be back in this I, world. I can't with these wait. I, I, I cannot wait. I got, you know, I got big plans. I'm keeping <laughs> my fingers crossed that I'm going to be able to come through with them on the publishing side. But uh, if I can keep my pen to paper for the
0: next nine months, I think we'll be in a really good place. <sighs> I
3: love hearing nice. this. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Max, we really do appreciate your time. And as we wrap up, um, we have a couple things we always end our episodes with. um, And I'm going to throw the first one over to Nick since we are called Just Keep Writing. So I'll let him uh, ask the last question. Yeah, Max, you've got a ton going on at all times. You approach writing each project differently. You've done a bunch of things out there. But everyone's
1: got to know, what keeps you writing? It's a great question. I want to see what happens next. Uh, That's perfect. I like that. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs)
0: That's the heart of
1: it, you know. That's what. What's where does it go? (laughs) And you can ask that question. You know, you can ask that question even if you're the kind of person who comes to the page every single day with a detailed outline of the next nine books in your series. You know, it's like. What's the next what's the next what's the rejoinder to this line gonna mm. be? what's what's really around that next turn of the bend? I know there's gonna be a corpse, and I know that's gonna be the corpse of this particular elf for this reason, but what's what's it look like? What's the first thing that that she notices when she turns that corner? Um, that's that's what keeps me going.
0: Well, I love that answer by the way. Wait, before we let you go, you talked about a little bit about what you have coming up. Is there anything else you can talk about that you have coming up that you haven't mentioned on the show? And the last thing I always ask our guests is where can people find you on social media? um, If you have a Patreon a website, any of that kind of stuff. So feel free to uh, throw all that out there and we make sure everything gets in the, in the show notes uh, for people to follow you and stuff.
1: All right. Excellent. Um, as far as upcoming projects, I think I think that's about the shape of it. Um, last exit, if everything goes according to plan, is going to be out in like January, February of next year. And then uh, the craft sequence books out the following year. And then who knows what, what else will take shape this year? We'll see. Fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> everything else is shrouded under cover of darkness and secrecy. And as for where people can find me, my uh, website is www.maxgladstone.com. I'm at Max Gladstone on Twitter, though I am on Twitter very infrequently because of uh, you know the exigencies of the pandemic, be- leaving us with an awful lot of childcare and mm-hmm. two demanding careers and a bunch of uh, a bunch of cooking to do around the house. Have meant that uh, unessential services need to. You know, get thrust out the airlocker into the torpedo tubes and Twitter's <laughs> definitely been one of those. So I'm there. You can follow me, but I'm not going to be talking to people all that often. Um, I got a contact form on my website if people want to reach out. I did just start a uh, sort of content writing, like a writing newsletter Writing stuff, I'm reading things I'm thinking about newsletter, which is currently on Substack. Who knows whether it's going to be on Substack next week? But right now, it's maxgladstone.substack.com, or if you just look at my Twitter bio, you'll be able to find the link. Awesome. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I am right now.
0: Well, uh, again, we, I I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and spend some time with us. Um, I think. Our, our listeners, including us, are all taking furious notes as you speak. So so we, we appreciate it. Anybody have anything else to say before we ma- let Max go? Buy all of Max's books. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's
2: a good one.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, I'm ready for the craft series to have its own either movie set, animated adult version of it. I love the world too, building in that. Too. Thank you so much. Thank you all. This has been a
0: really wonderful conversation. been great talking to you. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.